Welcome to the January 10th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and the sermon is entitled Divine Timing, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. I am ready now to move back into the Gospel of John as we are traveling through it, uh, and uh, we're taking it step by step, verse by verse. Today we're stepping into the seventh chapter. So you might want to turn with me and get ready for these verses of Scripture that we study today. Uh, this, is, this is sermon number 26 in the John series. It's amazing how quickly the John series has gone. We are in chapter 7 out of 21 chapters. So that tells me there's going to be somewhere between 75 and 85 sermons in this series as we complete this entire book. You know, when you preach expository sermons, which look at it verse by verse, you can't handle but so many verses uh, in a sermon. And so I'm moving as quickly as I can, but also as carefully as I can, that you and I can understand the Word of God in the Gospel of John. And I'm learning like you are learning, so we're grateful to be there together today. So as we take this step further in the Gospel of John, this, of course, is uh, the account of Jesus' life. Uh, through the disciple John's eyes. John was the longest lived of the disciples. He probably lived past 90 years of age, which was a miracle in his day and in his time. But he walked with Jesus in earthly ministry, probably in his late 20s or early 30s. And God then gave John 50 years to think about and to streamline that story of Jesus' life and the account of Jesus' life. And then after 50 years, when John was an older man, God moved on his heart under the inspiration of the Spirit to write these words of the gospel, giving us an account of Jesus' life. But do bear in mind, remember this, that John himself says that this is an account of the high watermarks of Jesus' life. If all of the activity and account of Jesus' life were to be written down in his 33 years of life here, John says the world could not contain all the books that would be written of Jesus' life. So he gives us the high watermarks of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. We're going to open chapter 7 today. And as we begin this chapter, let me say this to you. Of course, closing chapter 6, the longest chapter in the Gospel of John, that was a long journey. But chapter 6 is kind of the preacher's chapter. Because in chapter 6, we see uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000. We see Jesus walking on the water to the boat for his disciples because they were in such fear. We also hear his words about being the bread of life. And so there's so much preaching material. The, the sermons just flow uh, when you get into those accounts of Jesus' life. Chapter 7 is a bit different chapter. As we begin this chapter today, it doesn't quite grab you with those accounts in the same way as chapter 6 does. And yet, let me add this very quickly. This is a very, very important chapter because it's leading us step by step to the cross that Jesus would endure for the sin of the world, including yours and mine. So chapter 7 is an extremely important chapter and as I begin today, here's the major point that I want you to take away from this sermon today. Every day of Jesus' life was on a divine timetable. God Almighty, the Father, set Jesus' life on a course. And every meeting and every activity and every miracle and every word and every sermon was according to a divine timetable set before Jesus by his Father God. 
Uh, and we know that God's plan and God's calendar and God's cross could not be rushed, nor could it be altered. Jesus was to follow his Father God in every step of his earthly life. And that he did. He followed the Lord God Almighty even to a cross and out of a grave. So with that thought, let's open chapter 7 today. and We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Open your Bible with me. If you're streaming with us today, open that Bible with me. If you're in a, on an FM signal out in the parking lot, open your Bible with me as we hear these 13 verses of the 7th chapter of the Gospel of John. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, and thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these things unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews." May God add his blessing to the reading of this precious portion of his holy and his mighty word. Well, as we look at these verses today, as we see this account of Jesus' life starting in chapter 7, I want you to notice that John here sets a time frame for us. And I want you to move back in time just a moment. If you want to flip back, look at chapter 6, verse 4. The time frame for chapter 6 is in verse 4. It says this, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. So all of chapter 6 took place during the time frame of the Passover. So as we get to chapter 7, we're in another time frame. That is the Jewish holiday of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Passover coincides with our Easter. Jesus was killed on a cross during Passover. And so Passover coincides with our Easter. That's mainly in April. The Feast of Tabernacles is in October. So what I want you to see at the get-go here is that that little white spot between the close of chapter 6 and the opening of chapter 7 is a six-month span of time. So we don't have six months in John's account out of Jesus' life between chapter 6 and chapter 7. But remember, John is writing by God's inspiration a streamlined account of Jesus' life. But those six months are not included. Can you imagine what Jesus did in six months of time? But it's not accounted for in the Gospel of John. We're moving from Passover to Feast of Tabernacles uh, as Jesus is here now in chapter 7. 
What is the Feast of, of Tabernacles? Well, it is the Jewish holiday that remembers Israel's journey in the wilderness when they were released from slavery in Egypt. But not only does it celebrate the fact that they were freed from slavery and gone into the wilderness, it also celebrated the time of harvest for Israel. So being in October, they were celebrating the fact that the harvest had been gathered in and God had fed his people. So it's a celebration time. And as Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, it filled up just as with Passover. It filled up with people from all over the world, from other nations. And Jerusalem was very crowded with those who were worshiping God and taking part of the festivities of the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's in this celebration time is where we're landing here in this scripture. It's one week long. Seven days is the uh, time frame for the Feast of Tabernacles. But as we open John chapter 7, while Jerusalem is in festivities, Jesus is not in a festive mood here. It's a difficult time in his life because his ministry is facing more and more opposition. Uh, pressure is building against him as a man of God, as the Savior of the world, he is not accepted freely in all corners in which he preached. In fact, if you remember in chapter 6, verse 66, it says that many of his disciples, after they heard the description of the Lord's Supper, fell away, walked away. And the way it comes across in the Greek language is they walked away and they never came back. So Jesus lost disciples. It's as if the church would have a split. How would we feel if that would happen? It would break our hearts. Jesus' heart was broken because there were many who walked away from him and away from the true word of God and would never come back. So we find Jesus in that frame of mind. He's opposed. He is sad. He is challenged. Uh, also remember back in John chapter 5 when he healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. A plan started in that moment against him. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen. John chapter 5 verse 16 says this. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. And so in chapter 5, we see the beginnings of a plan to rid the world of Jesus the Christ. In chapter 5, we see that the Jews and the leaders of Judaism get their heads together to develop a plan that they could kill Jesus, rid the world of this one who was bringing uh, so many words against their sedentary lifestyles and challenging them calling them evil, and they wanted to rid the world of Jesus. Well, the death plan in chapter 5 had now grown as we get over into chapter 7 where we are today. It had grown so much that Jesus had to guard his life. Well, we can equate that a little bit in a homely way to what, to, that we're guarding our lives right now. In this COVID season, we are wearing masks we're being, we're being careful about social distancing and not shaking hands and not hugging like we used to. You know, we're guarding our physical health right now. And rightly so, we should. This church is doing its very, very best between every meeting to guard your physical health. We're cleaning this room every time we meet together. So we're doing our best to guard your health. Well, Jesus in this section of Scripture is guarding his own life because right now death threats are hot against him. He's not going to Jerusalem because that's where the death threats are the hottest. Now, let me set the, the geography here. Jesus, at this point that we read this scripture, is up north in Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. All the festivities are taking place in Jerusalem, 80 miles to the south. So Jesus 
has separated himself in Galilee while everything is happening down in Jerusalem, 80 miles away. One of the reasons is because, as Scripture says, he's guarding his life. He knows if he publicly goes into Jerusalem that his life is going to be in danger, and it's not time for him to die yet. On God's divine timetable, it is not time. So by God's plan, he's staying out of the danger zone. He's staying up in Galilee while all the activity is taking place in Jerusalem. So up near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' biological brothers approach him. The Greek word for brothers here is adelphoi. And by the definitions that I can find, it refers to his physical family. It means of the same family. So these are his biological brothers, as all the study that I have done has pointed to the fact that these are truly his brothers. Well, of course, uh, as we know their names and through Matthew 13, their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. And, of course, they're half-brothers. All of these boys share the same mother in Mary. Uh, the, other three, the other four brothers share Joseph as a father. Jesus' father is the Holy Spirit of God. So he is a half-brother biologically to these men. But here's the interesting thing about Jesus' brothers. Look at John chapter 7, verse 5. You might want to underline this for now. For neither did his brethren or his brothers believe in him. His biological brothers approach him, but not as believers. They were lost. They did not come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Although they grew up with him, and I'm sure in their childhood and teen years, they heard about the manger, they heard about the census, they heard about his birth and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the whole story. All these boys knew it. But they could not come to their brother as the Savior. You know their unbelief fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Write this reference down. Psalm 69, verse 8. Let me read that verse to you. Psalm 69, 8 says this. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's children. I think that's an interesting verse of Scripture written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And yet it prophesies this very moment in Jesus' life. So Jesus' brothers are still lost at this point. Now we know James and Jude did indeed come to Jesus. We have word of their salvation in two letters in the Bible, James and Jude. Those are the brothers of Jesus. But here in John chapter 7, these unbelieving brothers come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, now I want you to understand the tone of their voice. This is not a positive, upbuilding word from the brothers. They're taunting him. They are almost making fun of him. They're bringing opposition to him. They're not uplifting him at all, but they're saying, Hey, Jesus. If you really are God, then you need to travel on down to Jerusalem. You need to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles where all the people are down there 80 miles south of us. You need to pull out a few of your miracles. You need to show them that you are God. If you're truly God, go down there and show them you are. Pull out a few of your tricks. Let them see your miracles. Don't just sit up here in Galilee in secret. Go down to Jerusalem and show them who you are. They're taunting him. They are belittling him, not believing that he is the Son of God. They were lost, and they refused to believe. Now look at John chapter 7, verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. 
So Jesus says, my time has not yet come. As he talks to his brothers up in Galilee, he's saying, I'm not hiding. I'm not scared of men. I'm not really scared of a death threat. It's just not God's timing for me to go to Jerusalem yet. God's timing is setting the stage of my life. It's not time by his timetable for me to go to Jerusalem. Now look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Remember, he's talking to his brothers now. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The world does not hate lost people. In fact, in a majority sense, the world is led by lost people. The world doesn't hate lost people. But Jesus said, the world hates me. If you're opposed to Jesus 2,000 years ago and today, if you're opposed to Jesus, the world has no disagreement with you. The world will agree with you. But Jesus tells his brothers, the world cannot hate you because you're living like the world. You're living like the rest of the world. So why would it hate you? But he says... The world surely hates me. The world hates my life. The world hates my word. The world hates it when I call evil, evil. The world hates it when I tell you the truth about what sin is and what it means to be away from God the Father. Jesus said the world hates the truth, and therefore it hates me. And friends, it's still true today. Still true today. His word is still being fulfilled. Let me say this, church. If we stand up and rightly preach and teach and live God's Word against the evils of the world this day, don't think that Clifford Baptist Church is going to get an award for it. Don't think we're going to get a pat on the back from the world for it. The world is going to hate anyone who represents Jesus the Christ. The world is going to oppose anyone who stands with Jesus the Christ. That's the word of Scripture in John 7, and it has not changed 2,000 years later. It's still the same world. The true church will not be loved by the world. So in John chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus tells his unbelieving brothers, you guys go on down to, Galilee, go on down to Jerusalem. Leave Galilee and go there. Take that 80-mile journey. Go down to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus said, I am not yet going to the feast. It is not my time to go there. So Jesus' brothers do strike out. They traveled that 80 miles. It's kind of amazing to me. You know, 80 miles on foot in that day, was, that was nothing. Just go do it. Uh, we'd, think of, we'd think long and hard about walking 80 miles, wouldn't we? They didn't. They just, they just, that, was, that was life. They just did it. So Jesus' brothers go on down to Jerusalem, but Jesus tarries. He waits behind in Galilee. Look at verse 10, John 7, 10. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Did Jesus change his mind about going? Absolutely not. God just tapped him on the shoulder and said, now's the time. You go now, following my divine timetable for your life. This is the moment for you to travel to Jerusalem. So Jesus obeyed his father. He went behind his brothers, but he did go on to Jerusalem according to his father's will. He was not fearful. But I want you to notice that he came into Jerusalem secretly. He came in with no one's knowledge. He came in with no fanfare. Now, I want you to remember also at this point in Jesus' life, his ministry was extremely high profile. He had brought forth miracles. He had preached the word of God. Multitudes had been fed. He had, he had touched 
hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives as the Savior of the world. So his ministry is extremely high profile right now, but nobody knew that he had walked into Jerusalem, and yet they were talking about him. Even though they weren't noticing his presence there, they were talking about him. You'll notice that the word in King James Version is murmuring. You remember I defined that word for you three or four sermons ago. Murmuring is when people talk quietly in groups of two or three or four because they don't want to be heard by others. So there were little cliques of people murmuring, talking about the ministry of Jesus, not even knowing that he was there in Jerusalem. And as Jesus, Jesus quietly comes into Jerusalem, as people talked about him, some of them loved him. Some of them were trying to figure him out. Some of them were right on the threshold of accepting him. And some of them downright hated him. And some of them wanted him dead. It was a great mixture of people in Jerusalem at that time. But everybody knew he was a wanted man. Everybody knew there was a price on his head. Everybody knew that the leadership of the Jews wanted him dead and were seeking to kill him. According to verse 13, people avoided talking about Jesus out loud for fear that they would be heard and they would be associated with Jesus and they would be punished like Jesus was going to be punished. So they talked quietly not to be heard by the Jews lest they be linked up with Jesus and punished like he was going to be punished. So that brings us to the stopping point of Scripture today. So what does it teach us? If I were to end the sermon right now, it's an incomplete sermon. What does this Scripture passage teach us about being the people of God? I think it has a great teaching for us. Here are three predominant truths that I have gleaned and picked up from this Scripture. First, Jesus lived on God's divine timetable, and he was intent on following God's leading. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection was timed to the moment by God Almighty. As I said in a sermon, one of the things that tickles me from J. Vernon McGee is when he's talking about Jesus' birth. He said, when that little donkey came into Bethlehem with Mary on that donkey's back, that donkey was more on time in God's will than the best jet airplane has ever been coming into an airport because it was God's timing. It was God's moment for Jesus to be born, and he lived his entire life in that way. But I believe this. Your life and my life also have a divine timetable. I believe God has a plan for every single one of us. If you read the opening to the prophecy of Jeremiah, God said, Jeremiah, before you were ever conceived, before you were born, I had a plan for your life. I don't think Jeremiah was different from any one of us. Before we were born, God had a plan for your life, my life. But that plan cannot be enacted until Jesus Christ lives in your heart as your Savior. Until we know him, our life is going to meander around. And there are many lost people out there, and they become millionaires and all of the good things this world could offer. But their life is meandering around in lostness, but they're headed to a destination. They're headed to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. 
But God has a plan for every life, and that plan is enacted and empowered when Jesus lives in our heart as our Savior. You, my friend, have a divine plan and a divine timetable for your life. So do I. You know, we spend a lot of time planning for the future. All of us do. Planning for retirement, planning for a future vacation this year to come. Uh, some of us make our plans looking at the climate of the world, what the world is like right now. And we plan our lives according to what we see happening in the government and in the world. All of us, I believe, in our hearts and minds are gifted by God that we can look at the future and plan for the future. And that's okay. But here's the point. I don't want you to forget Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. This is from the Common English Bible. But Jesus said, stop worrying about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, what Jesus is saying, it's okay that we plan, but don't put so much stock in tomorrow that you lose the value of today. There's something that you and I are to be doing for the Savior in ministry today. So we can look down the road to our tomorrows, but never take away from your today. We have to give the Lord our very best every day we live because God has a divine purpose for your day today, my day today. Here's the second truth that I see out of this seventh chapter of John. The unsaved world is not a fan of Jesus Christ, and the unsaved world is not a fan of the church. Now, I can feel Jesus' sorrow on his shoulders as he's dealing with his brothers here. As you pick up the truth that they're not uplifting him, they're taunting him, they're making fun of him. And I can feel that sorrow, and I can feel the sorrow on him that he'd lost disciples that walked away will never come back. The sorrow on his shoulders that his ministry was gaining opposition by the day. There was a price on his head for death. Have you ever been shunned? Have you ever been made fun of as a child of God? Has someone in your circle of friends ever set you aside because you won't listen to the dirty jokes or you won't participate in the language of the crowd? I think all of us in some way or other know that we've been kind of called out by the group because we're believers in Christ and we're treated differently. Well, listen, we're in good company when we're pulled out from the crowd because Jesus Christ was pulled out from the crowd as well. Jesus was disliked and hated because of his stand in the Father. So truth number two is this, friend. Stay true to him. Stay true to him. Even when the world rejects you, or the workplace rejects you, or your circle of friends shuns you, stay true to the Savior. Stay true to him no matter where you are or whom you are with. Stay true to that Savior. He knows where you are because he's been there. Here's truth number three. Truth number three from this scripture is for the church. Here's what I believe. I believe there are two kinds of churches. First, there's the church that will do all it can to adapt to the world, to bring the world inside the doors. The church wants to stay acceptable. That church wants to stay comfortable. That church wants to stay conformable and accountable to the world so nobody is challenged. 
So when people come in and gather in the sanctuary or listen by streaming, their toes are never stepped on. Okay, the world says that we can marry gay couples, so the church adapts to that. The world says we can ordain gay ministers, so the church adapts to that. Woe to that church that stands before the judge one day. Woe to the one who compromises this word and steps out of it and sugarcoats it or waters it down to meet where we are. We need to stand strong and true and tall on the word of God, no matter what the world throws at us. You know, I believe that the church is poised right now for much more opposition to come from the world. There are parts of the world where ministers are forbidden by the law to preach on certain things from the Word. It's happening today. It's coming to us sometime. But I can tell you this. When that time comes in the United States of America, I will defy the law. And I believe, I know two other pastors that will as well. Praise God. First kind of church wants to accommodate the world, adapt to the world. Here's the second kind of church. That's the one that follows God's thinking and the one that follows God's law and God's word. Not the world, but the word. We're not led by comfort. We're not led by conformity. But rather we concentrate on change and we concentrate on commitment and we concentrate even on sacrificing wherever the Lord would have us to go and whatever he'd ask us to do, we will give to him however he asks us to. We will follow him no matter the cost. We will give our lives to him. We're not led by comfort. We're not led by conformity. We concentrate on the Savior. Now, Jesus says that the world will not love that kind of church. But the Savior says, I will not leave that church. I will take care of you. And I will lead you through. Friends, if we're going to make an impact If we're going to make a difference in this world, Jesus called us the salt of the earth. Salt changes the flavor and the texture of things. If we're going to be the salt of the earth, to be agents of change in the world, then we can't adapt to the world. We stand on the word. We stand above the world because we're representing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's easy for us to worship in this room because all of us believe. The challenge comes when we walk out of these doors and you go into your life and my life goes out into that world. We're going to stand on that word and we're going to stand on the truth that Jesus Christ has us as his representative there that others can see him in us. That others can be led to the Savior and to his forgiveness and to his kingdom and away from hell and to heaven by seeing the lives of Christians in the world. For the true church, I believe that while the church itself needs to be together and arm in arm and step by step together in that charge, it comes by individual commitment. You know, I can't order you as the church. This is the kind of church we're going to be. That's my order to you. I can't do that. I don't have that authority. But I can say this. I, for one, am going to stand on the Word of God no matter what. And here's the question, will you join me there? Will you join me there? And when all of us say yes, that's when we become the church that changes the world. When he gels us together in that good news that we indeed 
can be his people in this world. Pray, pray for Clifford Baptist Church to be that church and to be those people in the world. Do your part in that commitment. Nobody else can take your place here. Nobody else can fill your ministry. Nobody else has your talents. Nobody else can fulfill your place in what God has called you to do in your divine purpose within this church family. Do your part. Do your part. And I'll stand with you and I'll do mine. And we can change the world through Jesus Christ. And today if you're here and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I cannot close this sermon until I give you an invitation that doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. It is given by Jesus. Jesus said, All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. But I went to the cross and I died for you and I shed my blood, my body broken, that you might be forgiven. The perfect Lamb of God died in your place on the cross. And on the third day I rose from the grave to give you eternal life. I forgive you and I adopt you, my, my son or daughter, and I will keep you forever. If you will make one decision to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I want to put all my sin at the foot of your cross and ask forgiveness, and I ask you to be my Savior. I open my heart and my life to you, and no matter where the world might go, I'm going to walk with you as you walk with me. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to represent you. I'm going to worship you, and one day you'll take me home. I want to belong to you. If you've never made a decision for him, if you're here in person in this sanctuary, you can come to him this day. I would say publicly come, just as he publicly died on the cross, you come to him today. If you're streaming today or a FM signal today, wherever you are, he'll save you right where you are if you'll just say yes to him, if you'll come to him. It's an important moment in the church. So let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Father God, thank you for these words, Lord. Sent chills down my spine when Jesus said, the world hates me. But I realize, Lord, that if I'm going to stand for you, the world's not going to like me either. But I will do whatever I can do by God's timing and will and plan in my life to walk the footsteps of Jesus. Am I perfect in that? Absolutely not, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm human. But I want to grow every day in walking like you and talking like you and being like you. I want to stand above the world and I want to represent the Word of God. I pray I have brothers and sisters who surround me in this church building and streaming by FM Signal who say, I want to make that same commitment, Lord. Wherever I am, whoever I'm with, I will represent you because you're my Savior. You're my King. And you sit on the throne of my heart. I pray we will recommit our lives to that, Lord. And when we do that individually, you will gel us and join us as a church that we will take that message into the world, that the world might be changed through the love of Christ. If there's one here, Lord, who needs you as Savior, I pray today is that day that he or she says, Lord Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I, I'm a sinner. I need to lay all that down and come to you. So today, Lord, I come asking your forgiveness through the old rugged cross, asking your life through the empty tomb. I come. Church home, whatever the need, bless us in these moments through Jesus our Savior, we pray.
Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.